0: Welcome to the podcast for St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School Sherman Center that's in Random Lake, Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee and south of Sheboygan. We're pleased to share with you recent sermons and Bible classes from our congregation. We welcome you to join us for divine service Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We have Bible classes currently offered at 8.15 a.m. on Sunday. Join us to receive the Lord's word and his gifts. Uh, before we do that, actually, just a little housekeeping. Housekeeping, housekeeping. What did we talk about? Last week I mentioned I mentioned the um, prayer of Azariah and then the song of the three children. Remember that? The three young men? Yeah, they're not really children. I mean, Daniel's friends. And uh, how in the Greek Old Testament, they're inserted into Daniel. Right? And I read that for you. Uh, but I also mentioned that Concordia has a edition of the Apocrypha, which is a collection of um, disputed writings. So they're included in some Bibles. They're usually included separately and... Um, their edition is helpful because it gives also commentary from, say, Luther or uh, Gerhard or Chemnitz or some of, you know, the Lutheran uh, fathers as to its appropriateness and, and how it might be used. There's also commentary as far as, like, where did they come from and when were they written, that kind of thing. And it's called, yeah, Apocrypha, the, the Lutheran edition, all right, because everything, you have to put Lutheran on the cover, uh, with notes. And it's actually really helpful it's meant to be a companion if you've got one of those study, the study Bibles. So I'll uh, you know, start it here with Walt, and you can pass it around. Maybe, where's the, uh, maybe I just need a piece of paper to mark. Uh, a scrap of paper. No scraps of paper. Here, we'll just use one of these. I'll mark the, uh, there's no ribbons, the Prayer of Azariah and the Three Holy Children, so you can see that. All right. But You can see all the other books in here. Other apocryphal texts from Daniel... Uh, is right next to it, I think. Yeah, Bell and the Dragon is another one. That's and Susanna as well. So check that out. Pass that around if you would, and uh, then you can get an idea. I'm not trying to sell it to you, but if you're interested, you know, get a copy, and then you'll uh, be able to read it. Yeah, it's from Concordia Publishing House. I think it's pretty reasonable. I think it's probably twenty dollars or something. All right. Welcome, Don. I was just doing a little housekeeping, and it is now precisely 9:15. I knew that. Yeah, (laughs) you, you definitely come from sales, you know. (laughs) 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 Clock in, clock out. (laughs) Bell rings. Show's Mm -hmm. over. Yep. Doors are closed. All right. The store will close in 15 minutes. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, you have gathered us together by your word and spirit uh, to hear the ways that you protect and preserve us in this world, and how you even use uh, earthly rulers, whether they are believers or not, uh, to provide for us, to protect us, and, and to guide all the affairs of this world for our benefit. We ask that we would see Of this revelation through your work and Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar how you still author and preserve all things in this world in Jesus name amen okay a little bit of uh, background before we dig into the text where remember Daniel's chapter one through six they're kind of uh, they're episodes we said last week all right and we kind of jump around in time There is no time indication here, so we don't know exactly what year this happened. Although, we have a pretty good idea of when Nebuchadnezzar went bonkers. Um, Crazy, you know? And so, just like we talked about in chapter 3, there was a revolt, and that may have been the context for him building the statue. Um, Here, we know this is probably towards the end of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, uh, I think Ron asked, it is Nebuchadnezzar II, I don't know anything about Nebuchadnezzar the but this is Nebuchadnezzar the <laughs> And the king that follows him is this Belshazzar guy that's in chapter five. Um, there is another king that was not recorded in Daniel, um, but that came before uh, the Persians conquered Babylon, uh, and that would be under Cyrus, which we'll see in chapter six. But um, um, that king, his name is, I'm going to look it up here, his name is... Oh, I just lost it. Where is it? Oh, Nabonidus. Nabonidus. Why this is interesting is that there's actually another apocryphal text. It's not in the Apocrypha, but they found it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered, what, in the 40, 30, 40s, 30s, 40s? 57. Okay, there you go. 57. There's actually a scroll that talks about um, this, the king Nabonius. And it's interesting, just, just as a background. Uh, somebody, whoever authored that, that story, took elements of chapter 4 of Daniel and ascribed them to this other Babylonian king. Uh, a lot of things. Uh, like he was plagued with a dream, and then um, for seven years, and there's all sorts of things that are common to it. Uh, maybe we don't have to go into a lot of detail, but uh, remember that there is a world of biblical scholarship. Uh, these are not necessarily people who believe the Bible, you know, gives, you know, the saving knowledge of faith and, you know, through faith in Christ, but rather, um, you know, that the Bible is just another like, historic textbook, in a way, and they put the Bible under um, historical scrutiny to see whether other texts, uh, say the histories, you know, from, I don't know, Eusebius or Josephus or uh, the Babylonian historians, whether they match up with what you read in the Bible. And uh, sometimes Christians get a little bit miffed about this kind of work <laughs> because they say, well, how dare you question, you know, the Bible because it's a holy book, right? Um, Lutherans actually are unique, maybe not so unique, shouldn't be unique, but we are. And that we actually think that's perfectly wonderful, actually put the Bible up. So, and actually, a lot of Protestant Christians actually don't have this problem. Put it up against historic scrutiny, Um And the reason why is that, in particular, the death and resurrection of Jesus is, if it isn't historic fact, then our faith is in vain, Paul says. So we actually want you to try to to disprove the faith, the historicity of the faith, that it actually happened in in time. And um, because our faith is actually dependent upon a real event happening in time, that is Jesus dying and rising for our sins. All right? So uh, that's why... Especially Protestant or non-Roman Catholic his, uh, Christians are active in things like archaeology. Uh, you went to the presentation, right? Yeah, that Dr. Jastram did over in West Bend. Was that? Yeah, talking about biblical archaeology, and he probably made that point. Did he? Yeah, at length. I mean, that's that's the reason why we we are as Christians um, very active in archaeology. Not because we need to prove our faith, um, but it is. It's actually just fun to find evidence that the biblical witness is actually the witness of um, of the truth, historicity, the historicity of the truth. Anyway, so there's this there's this scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and people say, "Well, that's obviously older." All right, obviously older than Daniel four. Well, I would argue not; it's the other way around. But um, but it's interesting because they they take what is recorded in Daniel chapter four and then apply it. Whoever wrote this apply it to another Babylonian king in a kind of a similar way. Trying to fill in, probably, I think the best hypothesis, he's trying to fill in the gaps between Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and then Cyrus. And tell us what happened in between. Yeah?
1: Didn't this uh, Paul Meyer from the Lutheran foundation uh, or something go and uh, retrace a bunch of this stuff in the Middle East about uh,
0: paul Meyer. he's he's at like Eastern Illinois University. It sounds like a kind of a rural place. Um, but yes, he's also kind of crazy in person. He, he doesn't like brush his hair, so his hair is like sticking out <laughs> over but he's like the guy used to watch on the history channel, you know, with the crazy yeah. hair. Yeah. Uh, no, but you're right. And I've heard him speak on even on like um issues, etc. I haven't heard him speak in person. I've seen videos of him speaking.
1: Yeah, have have seen videos hmm
0: Yeah. Yeah. So.
1: But he was doing, tracing different things through the Middle
0: East. That. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with subjecting the Bible to that kind of scrutiny. Now, I know that might make you uncomfortable. Um, but again, we our faith is founded on fact. Right? So I just give you this as an example that if you do a lot of reading on Daniel 4, you're going to find now since, 19, since the Dead Sea Scroll discovery, you're going to find a lot of you know, critique. And then we're going to encounter this in other ways too, where people say, well, you know, Daniel's clearly drawing on other traditions and then bringing in the text. Um, maybe another example, not from Daniel, just for the sake of argument, would be the, um, the flood you know, and the Noah, Noah's flood. Well, there's, there's other flood um, narratives in other traditions. And a big one is... Gilgamesh, the Gilgamesh epic. You heard of this, all right? And and again, the scholars today will say, well, Gilgamesh is obviously older because Christian, you know, Jew, the Jewish faith and Christianity is newer. So, so then they draw the, the Noah story out of the Gilgamesh epic, uh, and we would argue the other way around that the the Gilgamesh epic is an is a uh, distortion of the Noah flood story that's retold as the story was shared and it spread. Because you remember. Uh, the Promised Land is right... It's a primary trade route throughout, you know, the known world at that time. So, you know, it even ends up being on the Silk Road from, you know, from Europe through to China. There's actually distortions, I would say, of the Christian faith in, in some of the Chinese, um, you know, ancient teachings. Anyway, so just side note. Daniel chapter 4. Uh, so another dream. This dream's a little bit different than chapter 2, though, so... Uh, maybe we'll highlight some of those differences. But let's uh hmm I guess we have to read the dream first and before we get to Daniel's interpretation. So let's let's read up through the dream. Who would like to do that? Anybody in a reading mood? What
1: uh, does
0: that start at? chapter four verse one
1: that dwell in, uh, in all the earth. Peace be multiple, multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that Most High God has worked for me. How great are the, his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is everlasting kingdom. He is the of generation dominion generation of generation, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid. I thought, I, and the thoughts on on my bed and visions in my head troubled. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring to all the wise men of Babylon before me. That they might be known to me the interpretation of a dream. But then the missions, uh, magicians, astrologers. Who are these people?
0: The Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, yeah, we talked about them, what, last week? Two weeks ago? They're kind of like um, like the ru- they're like wise men, we would say. Yeah.
1: Professors.
0: Yeah, there you go. The scholars.
1: And as suit fairs came in, and and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me the interpretation. But at the last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belsazar Shazar. According to the name of my God, in him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belsazar. Chief of the Magicians, because I know that the Spirit of the Holy God is, is in you and no secret trouble you. explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and in, in its interpretation. These are the visions of my head while I was on my bed. I was looking and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its height reached the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and, and it was food for all. On the beasts of the fields found shade under it, the birds of the heavens dwelt on its branches, and all the flesh was fed from it. I saw the business of my head while in bed, and and there was a watcher, the Holy One, coming down from heaven. I cried aloud and said this, chop, chop down the tree and cut it, cut off its branches, strip of its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts come out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze and in the tender grass of the field let it, let it be wet with the dew of, of heaven, <clears throat> and let, let him graze with the beast on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man let him be given the heart of a beast and let it and let seven times pass over him this decision is by the decree of the watchers watchers, and the sentence of by by the word of the holy ones uh, in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and it gives to whomever he will, and sets over it in the lowest of men. Mm-hmm. This I, now this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, has seen. Now you, Belshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known uh, to he to me the inter- interpretation. You are
0: able, but you are able, for the Holy Spirit of the Holy God is in you. There you go. All right. Well, I'd like to say that we're going to get through this chapter, but I think there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of things to talk about. Um, notice the change of voice, right? So remember, each chapter kind of has this, its own kind of character. In chapter four, now, it's first person, but who's talking? Right now, anyway. This is first person from Nebuchadnezzar, right? Yeah, I, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Daniel's writing this, but he's writing, remember, he's writing this as a story, so you know he has this kind of narrative effect, and here it's, here it's like from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar talking, which is a little bit different. Um, he's at home, he's flourishing, and then he saw a dream and it frightened him. Now, this is a little bit different than back in chapter two, right? Because that dream, did it frighten him? Yeah. Do you remember? I don't think it really frightened him. It was more—it was concerning. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was really just angry more than anything, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, he got—he was like, "You're gonna—you're gonna interpret this dream. You're gonna tell me the dream, and you're gonna interpret it, or I'm gonna kill you and chop you up and burn your house down." Right? Yeah. Talked about that. It was a little bit different. Here, this one frightened him, and it—and the character too it, it, of the dream is such that, um. He doesn't require the magicians um, or even Daniel to both give the dream and its interpretation. Remember, we talked about that here. He's going to tell you the dream and then he wants the interpretation. Now, I think of some of the questions that we might want to explore here. Nobody can understand the dream, not the king, not his magicians. Right now, when we read these dreams, I think they seem pretty apparent what they mean, right? And we have a similar thing happening, which we've talked about a couple of times, uh, but especially the case here in dream interpretation and the parallel between Daniel and Joseph. Remember when Joseph is in Egypt and multiple times this happens. But think about like with the cupbearer and the baker, right? When he's in prison and they their dreams uh, and then he interprets them, right? And it's like, it's fairly obvious. I mean, if, if there's birds nesting in your hair, right, with the baker, yeah, okay, that means the birds are eating you, right? Where, whereas with the cupbearer, you know, it's a little bit different. But they don't get it. They don't see the dream. And they have the same thing with the king, with the sheaves. Or no, not with the sheaves. Joseph has this with his brothers. Remember with the sheaves bowing down to him? His brothers get it, right? But with Pharaoh, he doesn't get, um, I got to think of Pharaoh's dream, with the seven cows, Remember? the fat cows and then the, then the skinny cows, right? And, and it's like, that's kind of obvious, don't you think? There's seven years of prosperity and then seven years of famine, I mean. But the Pharaoh doesn't see it. And I think, at least from my perspective, these, the dreams are being obscured from the one given the dream by God. God's giving the dream and he's also obscuring their perception of it for the sake of Daniel interpreting it and then Daniel being the one who bears witness to what the dreams mean. Um, and that definitely is the case here because the magicians, soothsayers, Chaldeans all came. He, I told them the dream. However, its meaning they could not make known to me. All right. And nobody understood this dream. Uh, what's interesting about the dream is it's it's a pretty common motif uh, in the ancient world to describe a kingdom in terms of a tree. Some people some, uh, you know, pagan nations would actually, trees were a sign of, of their prosperity, right? So they would worship trees. The famous story of uh, who is the missionary to the Gauls, you know, to your ancestors in Germany. It started with a B. Uh, which was the, mid- he went and cut down the sacred tree and then used it to build the church on the spot. Anybody know this story? Oh, right. see, I wish I could remember now who it is. Uh, somebody have to look this up. I want to say it was Benedict, but Benedict's not right. Maybe it didn't start with a B. Anyway, yeah, he was a missionary to the, you know, Germans. And they were worshiping their sacred tree. So he cut it down. I used it to build the altar in the same spot to the Lord. Yeah. which is kind of thumbing your nose at their God, right? Now look at your God now. And worship the true God. It may not be a true story, but it's a good story. <laughs> and uh, why did I bring that up? Trees, worship God. Oh, trees. Trees is a big... Um, Using a tree as a as a like a sign of a kingdom is a is a big metaphor. A contemporary to Daniel, Ezekiel does the same thing. So mark your page there and go just go back a, a book to Ezekiel thirty-one. He does this actually twice, but we'll use Ezekiel thirty-one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, just a few pages back. 992, if you've got the corporate issue Bible. All right, so this is uh, Ezekiel giving a warning to Pharaoh. Again, it came to pass in the 11th year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, to whom do you liken yourself in your high position? You see, this is a very kind of similar thing. It's a prophet speaking to a king. Behold, Assyria was a cypress in Lebanon and he was, a beauti- he was beautiful in offshoots and high in greatness. His rule came to be among the clouds. All right, Assyria. Water nurtured him and depths made him grow tall. The depth led her rivers around his trees and sent forth her system into all the trees of the plain. All right. And there's birds of the heavens making their nests and the branches and the wild animals. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, what's the other one? I'm going to say the other one. I think the other one is Ezekiel 17. Yes, it is. And what's interesting in 17, you don't have to go to it, um, but the judgment of God against the nation that Ezekiel's speaking to is that he cuts down the tree. Right? So the tree is destroyed. It's cut down. That sounds familiar. Was it the same thing in 31? Does the tree get judged in that way? Does it get cut down? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? The foreigners, the plague of nations destroyed him and cast him down on the mountains. His branches fell in all the valleys and his stems were broken in every plant of the lane. Oh, every plane of the land, excuse me. All the peoples of nations bowed down in their shelter as it fell down to the ground. All the birds of heaven rested on his fall, and all the wild animals of the fields. All right. So this, this picture, you know, this is a contemporary of Daniel of, of picturing a nation as a tree, and then having, um, you know, the tree be glorious and grand, and then being judged, and being cut down. That's uh, that's contemporary. All right. Uh, there's some other citations for that, but we'll just leave it at that. So that's interesting. I think that if that's a kind of common metaphor, uh, why does why does Nebuchadnezzar not see it and again I think I'd suggest to you that it's uh, God is actually obscuring this from his sight for the sake of Daniel interpreting it alright questions so far alright so images upon my bed and visions of my head alarmed me from there I issued a decree to bring me all the wise men we talked about that including the Chaldeans and those they couldn't make it known verse uh, well I don't know what verse it is probably verse 5 for you Afterward, Daniel came before me, whose name is Belteshazzar. All right, now you remember that back from chapter 1 that the Babylonians gave the Hebrews Babylonian names. Uh, Belteshazzar is named after Bel, who is also known as Marduk, all right, who's a Babylonian god. And he is one of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. Like the name of my God, and the spirit of holy gods dwell in him. Okay, now we have to talk about uh, interpretation and translation. <laughs> all right, so uh, I got to use your Bible because all the verse numbers don't match up. I've got two different Bibles here that are two different translations that don't match to yours at all. So that's not helping me tell you what verse to look at. So let's get to the same thing here. Um, we said chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar king. Yes. Um, In verse 8 for you, his name is Balthazar, right? According to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. Notice how they translated that? Capital S, capital H, capital G. And singular, God. Uh, The Hebrew is plural. Elohim. Elohimin, excuse me. Which is God's plural. All right? And spirit, you know, we chose... New King James chose to uppercase this. All right, now where, what's happening here is there's two schools of interpretation of this entire chapter. One thinks that Nebuchadnezzar is being converted to true faith, and one school says no. All right, I, this is a big deal, actually. Does Nebuchadnezzar come to believe in the true God? No. Does he believe him to be alone, the God of heavens and earth? That's, it's actually, I think, a matter of our interpretation and in question. I don't think it's a closed question. He does confess the Holy One, um, but does he say, is he saying that he is God above all other gods, or is he saying he's the only God? Yeah. So the way that your corporate issue Bible translates this is, uh, it is goes with the school of thought that Nebuchadnezzar comes to true faith. And so, of course, Daniel has then the spirit of the holy God, the only God, the holiest God, the top God. Even if he's not monotheistic, he's at least the top guy. Um, whereas the, I think a, a faithful translation of the, tra- of, the, of the text is the spirit of the holy gods, plural. So a spirit of the holy gods. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, it seems to me, all the way through this chapter, remains polytheistic, meaning he has many gods, right? And that Daniel just happens to be aligned with the one who seems to be able to offer the most benefit to him <laughs> in interpreting this dream, okay? I mean, does this matter, I suppose? Is it possible to convert a pagan king to true faith? Of course it's possible, yeah. Uh, You can see uh, St. Paul trying to do this in two examples in Acts 24 and Acts 26, uh, who were, what are those two kings? I know which chapter they are. You know, Roman guys. Anybody know off the top of your head? Mm -hmm. I was going to throw out names, but then I'll probably forget. Uh, Let's see. Acts 24. That's Felix. Acts 26 is Agrippa. So Felix and Agrippa. King Agrippa. You know, and Agrippa seems to come around pretty well (laughs) to Paul's line of argumentation. Is it complete or true faith? That's a question. And what is faith? I mean, what is is conversion anyway? Uh, There's some argumentation. The Roman Catholics, for example, have a very different view of this. Um, they, can, they, they do believe that there's such a thing as a righteous pagan. So somebody who doesn't confess faith in Jesus, and yet because of their life and their morality is, you know, close to godliness. So they're, they're, they're close enough that God will just, you know, they'll forgive them for not confessing Jesus. I, I know I making a face. Um, think like Aristotle or, uh, yeah, I mean, Aristotle's the big one. It's like, I mean, Aristotle, he clearly, you know, he's theistic, he's godly, he understands virtue and, and courage and morality. So, I mean, how could he not be a Christian, even though he doesn't believe in Jesus or confess faith in the God, you know, God, the God that Jesus, you know, is one of three persons. You see, you see where the danger is here. It's like, well, what actually saves you? Right? Yeah, Faith. Not virtue not morality not works we would say that's our that's our token way of saying that right we're saved not by works less than a man should boast all right so this comes up with Daniel in this chapter in particular does't Nebuchadnezzar because he because he does seem to believe quite a bit is he believing in the true God and you can see it right there in the translation of eight chapter our verse eight of chapter four for you all right where it's the spirit of the Holy God or is it just of the holy gods holy gods whoa there's more I could talk about with that but we'll hold on yet Well, just look in the next verse. Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the Holy God, there it is again, is in you, and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. Now, again, spirit of the Holy God or spirit of the Holy Gods. Now, uh, this is actually not foreign (coughs) to the Old Testament, but we don't talk about it very much, uh, which is, that uh, both, well, Hebrews chapter 1, but in the Old Testament, it's 1 Kings, let's see if I can find a citation, 1 Kings 22. So you better jump there. Since I brought it up, we gotta go there. 1 Kings 22. So, I don't know, keep your sheet marking where we were. Uh, yeah, what verse? Oh yeah, here it is. So this is with Zedekiah. So this is about the same time, actually. Um, Let's just jump in at verse 19. All right, so 1 Kings 22, verse 19. Everybody, Uh, we're getting there. Yeah, in this book, Bible, it's uh, 419. 419. Sorry, I can give you page numbers. I'm used to doing, we do Bible study over at um, St. John, I've and I do it in church and I put it up on the screen. So I just type it in and voila, there it is. Nobody has to, we don't have a few Bibles, so. All right. Then Micaiah, yeah. <laughs> there's a few syllables in there, said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by and on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up? that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead. So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Does that sound kind of weird? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Uh, The picture that's being given here, it's not the only case. Um, Psalm 82, and it's also very similar to the beginning of Job, Job chapters 1 and 2, is that there's there's this council room, if you like, and the Lord is sitting upon the throne. And then they're all, if, these are the angels, right? And that they're, they're having a conversation about what they're going to do, right? And that the angels offer up you know, suggestions to the Lord and then the Lord either agrees to do them or not. <laughs> You're like, really, that's in the Bible? It's right there, right? This divine counsel. And you see that this actually pops up again in the Psalms quite a bit. Probably the most famous example is, I'll just go there, I won't make you jump there. Uh, Psalm 82, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. This is is the the gods, the the heavenly council, interceding for the people before the father, before the Lord. So, so justice, take care of the poor and the needy. Um, and maybe it's just because we don't talk about angels very much. <laughs> that we don't actually talk about. It's not a many examples, but there are a few of how these angels, um, how they serve the Lord and then serve us because they serve the Lord. I think I mentioned that in the sermon on Sunday at the very end. Yeah, because the angels minister to Jesus after his temptation, right? Um, we get this. Hebrews chapter 1 very clearly says that we have these ministering spirits that God sends, right, to care for us. And then we confess it um, in the small catechism, you know, with the daily prayer, that your holy angel watch over me, right? Uh, so uh, Nebuchadnezzar is speaking about Daniel having the spirit of one of these heavenly beings. And what's interesting is the Bible also talks the same way, except we have the we have a fuller revelation to know that there's only one God, and then all the other quote-unquote gods are actually his ministering spirits, the angels. Does that follow? So you don't actually have to translate this, the spirit of the holy God, all caps like that. You could just say the spirit of the holy gods, and by gods, lowercase g, referring to all of the supernatural heavenly beings that, that are in this council chamber. There's actually many more examples that I could give you. I have a whole book on it that every once in a while I try to dig into and then my mind goes a little bit wonky and then I have to stop. Um, but, I mean, we, you think of like the way St. Peter says it, powers and principalities in the heavenly places. Like, well, what is he talking about? That's what he's talking about. This unseen realm, the, the realm of the, of the angels. Uh, and if you call them gods or if you call them, you know, in our case we say, no, oh, there's only one God, but then he has all his ministering spirits. But the idea here in <laughs> Second Kings that... The the Spirit says, persuades, tries to persuade or tell the Lord that I'm going to go and I'm going to put lies in the mouth of the prophets to deceive the people.
1: Like, ooh,
0: that gets a little bit confusing, doesn't it? Yeah. But further on in the book
2: of Daniel, I was reading it and there was a passage that said, and then God
0: said, Gabriel, go and tell him what this means. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, because the angels, the ministering spirits, are God's messengers. That's correct. Yeah, and so we meet Dan, and we met meet Gabriel um, by name in in Daniel. Uh, the other angel, the other archangels, uh, Michael and the others. Well, Michael's here uh, in Revelation, but uh, the other guys I can't remember all their names. Do you remember the archangels' names? They come from the apocrypha, so that's why I'm pointing at it. Um, I can't remember those guys' names. What is Anybody remember the archangels' names? Or the other angels? Names. All right, never mind. Uh, we don't talk a lot about it because we don't know a lot about it. I think that's maybe the way to summarize this. Right? But I don't think you actually have to violate the, the text to, to confess that Nebuchadnezzar you know, trusts in this God that, that Daniel believes in. But I don't know that, I mean, we just don't have to say that Nebuchadnezzar denies all of his pagan deities. And he doesn't die that way. So uh, that's also a thing that I think we mentioned last week that makes us uncomfortable is that if you pay close attention to reading the history of Israel is that they confess faith in the true God and they often keep their pagan idols. Like their household gods. And every once in a while, a prophet or um, you know a king says, uh, no, actually get rid of those, those household gods that they worship alongside the true God. So this idea that there's like these perfect Perfect time, perfect race of people.
2: Down.
0: Not down far enough. <laughs>
2: not
0: far enough, you know. And that, and that the life of the of the believer is one of hundred percent faithfulness day in day out. It's not testified into in the Bible. We don't find anybody like that. Not any of the kings. Not any, nobody is faithful every day, right? Or once they convert, they stay faithful, right? What's the What are the American uh, Protestants talk about backsliding, right? Don't backslide. And it's like, uh, good luck, because that's, <laughs> that is the life of the Christian. Luther nailed it with the catechism, again, with those daily prayers. In the morning, you say, keep me from sin. The evening, you say, forgive me for my sin. Every day is, is daily dying and rising in, in your baptism. Um, so, you know, what Nebuchadnezzar believes on this day and where he ends up and whether he stays converted or any of that um, is actually just speculative and But I don't, I'm just a little uncomfortable with translating or, you know, in the translation trying to lead you to believe one thing about Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe we'll talk more about that in a bit. All right, but before we get too far deep in the reeds, okay, or weeds, as the case may be, hmm, no mystery is too difficult for you. Look at my dream I saw and tell me its meaning, right? Now, uh, of course, we already know that Daniel has done this for Nebuchadnezzar before, so... Perfectly expected that things would happen this way. All right. Behold, the tree was great. The height was great. We talked about this already, right? Yeah. Uh, what are we talking about? We're talking about the Babylonian Empire and and the, really the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heaven. It was visible to the end of the entire earth. Really, it conquered the entire known world. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit abundant. Food for all was in it. It was rich and wealthy. We know this because we had a golden statue that was how big? 90 feet by 30 feet or whatever it was. Six feet, I guess. Yeah. Under under it, the beasts of the field had shade and its branches the birds of the sky dwelt and from it all living creatures fed. So it was beneficent for, for the whole world to be a part of this kingdom. I mean, obviously you had to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, but, but you did get fed and you were protected and you had, you know... You had benefits. Friends with benefits, as they say. Yeah, just wherever. That's fine. All right. I was watching the visions upon uh, of my head upon my bed, which that's a repetition, isn't it? He said at the beginning, he says it again. And behold, this is again to that topic we were just talking about with, you know, the spirit of the holy gods. Now, I was watching the visions and behold, a watcher, who was a holy one, came down from heaven. Is that how yours says it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, again, this is one of these holy ones. This is an angel. And I
1: just messenger.
0: Yeah, a messenger. Yeah. That's what angel means. Yeah. Messenger. That's good. Right. So this is the, the holy watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. Right. So one of this angelic hosts, that's why we went back and looked at that first Kings passage where they're, where they're having a conversation with the Lord as to what they should do with the prophet. Right. And here, you know, the holy one comes with a message from the Lord, perhaps already having had the conversation and to speak uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is different than chapter two, where the Lord directly gave him the vision, right? How did it, how did it say it there? I say we compare and contrast. There's no mention of a holy one, right? The king had a I uh, had a dream, and then Daniel says. Uh, Daniel went to his house, made the decision. Well, God, the God from heaven gives them, gives him the vision of what the dream is, and then he says, um, Daniel says to him, "The secret the king has made, um, which the king has demanded." Oh yeah, verse twenty-eight. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. All right. So there, it's directly from God. Here, it's coming by way of a messenger. Now, we're pretty good about this because we have, um, you know, it's central actually to our understanding of, of how Christ instituted the church is that he continues to work, uh, work in us and through us by his word through messengers. That's what he does. He sends messengers, not just, you know, angels to announce his birth, not just, um, you know, women to come and, and meet with the disciples after he rises from the dead to bear witness, but he sends out his 12, well, rather 11 plus 1 plus 1 <laughs> ends up being 13. He sends them out, baptizing in his name, teaching all things that he has said, right? And it's not as if those men have power or authority in themselves. But Jesus says very specifically to them in Matthew 28 All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, now I send you. Again, with that same authority. So this idea that God would send a messenger um, is that is that like less less God speaking if it's coming by a messenger? Mm. No, not at all, right? But it is different here that you have this this holy holy one coming down from heaven, right? And again, it's part of this um, unseen realm, this heavenly council. It's just it's unique, and we don't don't talk that much about it, I suppose. All right, he called out loudly, and this is what he said. Uh, so who is the one bringing destruction upon Babylon? If it's the Holy One sent from God? God, God is, that's right. So who's going to cut down Nebuchadnezzar's tree, if you like? <laughs> cut off its branches, strip its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. It's one of the most amazing parts of the actual history of the story. This is Babylon's this great kingdom from Egypt all the way through to the far east. Right? And they've conquered the whole known world. And then in just a span of a few years, they're conquered. Yeah, by another. And it's all brought to ruin. Right? Which is, uh, we talked about, did we talk politics last week? I think we did. Or was it two weeks ago? Um, this is one of the dangers, you know, of, of putting too much trust in princes, or in this case, you know, your, your country, is that, you know, it just takes one bad egg and the whole thing could go to, go to hell, Literally. Um, I'm not going to say it'd be a democratic socialist, but, you know, you might think that 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 might not go so as well as you'd like. All right. So let's not get into politics, even though I just brought it up. All right. (laughs) Uh, However, this is what's interesting in verse 12. However, this or whatever 12 verse it is in yours. I'm sorry. I actually use this translation. Yeah, 14, 15. Nevertheless, 15. uh, leave the stump and and the roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze. All right. So uh, like in Ezekiel and also in Isaiah, when you hear about, you know, the tree being cut down, especially that Ezekiel text we looked at, um, they leave nothing. The whole thing is utterly devastated. There's not even a root left. Right now here in this vision, there's leave the root and leave it bound. All right. So, we haven't read far enough for you to probably understand what's going on there. Um, but I think the best suggestion is that um, maybe when Nebuchadnezzar goes, goes uh, completely bonkers, that they actually had to bind him. Yeah, restraint, right? When we call it like in, when they put the, in the mental institution or whatever, they put, they put you in restraints so you don't hurt yourself. Oh, the straitjacket, right? Yeah, Yeah, so maybe that's what he's talking about here. Um, which we'll get to as we talk about what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, all right? And with the grass of the field and with the dew from the sky, let it be wet and the beast will be its portion among the plants of the earth. This is where it gets really interesting. Let its heart, so it being the tree, but that's bound, but that's referring to Nebuchadnezzar, be changed from that of a human and let a heart of a beast be given to it and let seven times pass over it. Uh, this is actually a, a known mental disorder. There's a couple of different ones. There's a lyco, lyco something, where you think you're a, a wolf. Uh, lycanthropy, that's it. And there's zoanthropy, which is just you think you're an animal. But there's a very specific one that is called, where you think you're a cow, a beast. And I had to look this up. King George III, actually, was plagued by this one. Yeah, where he thought he was a beast, an animal. So it actually happens. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's documented. It's a real, real, a real thing. Yeah. Where you, I mean, you literally went, go nuts, because you're not an animal, right? But you think you are. Um, oh, that's probably, you, you've, I don't know if you've studied this, but you can get things like tails grafted onto you now, if you're interested in that. <laughs> you can get one. Yeah, you can get a tail. What? Yeah, yeah they, can, they can create them. They can create, give you a tail. They can even give it like motion, so you can make it move. Right, because you want to be a cat, like in that movie or something. No, people do this. They gra- they graft human parts onto themselves. Yeah, I know, I know. Hey, if you got enough money, you can do whatever you want. Uh, because there's so there there was a story about this, you know, because transgender isn't enough just to change, you know, your your chromosome. Well, but you you want to turn into an animal? Oh, I'm gonna think what was the one I saw that was really really nuts. What did they do? Like, like got the skin dyed so it had... Oh, like zebra stripes maybe? Something like that. And not quite right in the head. Right? And Nebuchadnezzar, certainly that happens to him. All right? And then, look again, speaking again about, about these like holy ones, uh, this decision is by the decree of the watchers. So think again of what we read in 1 Kings, right? The decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones. Again, here, it's all plural, right? The watchers, the holy ones. So why did Nebuchadnezzar say the spirit of the holy God, singular, even though the Hebrew is plural? Anyway, in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets it over the lowest of men. All right, so um, that's been a theme we've talked about at length. Um, and it's through the whole book, is that who is the one who has given Nebuchadnezzar this kingdom? The true God, yeah, the Holy One. Um, does Nebuchadnezzar know that? No. Does it even matter if he knows it or acknowledges it? It actually doesn't, right? Um, it's kind of like, uh, okay, we, want, we don't have to talk about politics. Let's apply something different. Um, your mechanic Right? Are you going to have a better mechanic if he's a Christian mechanic? Does that mean he's a better mechanic because he's a Christian? No. It only means that he acknowledges where his mechanic skills came from. (laughs) Right? And he appreciates them and he rejoices in them. He gives thanks to God for them. Right? Which is all good. Right? The mechanic who doesn't believe in the true God, but God has given skill and ability to fix your car... um, Does that mean that God wasn't operative there and he didn't do it? Well, of course he gave him the Even Just because the guy or or woman doesn't acknowledge it doesn't mean that it wasn't given to him by God, right? Uh, And it doesn't mean you can't enjoy the benefit of it, too, right? Having a good mechanic. So better just pick a good mechanic. Um, And then if he's Christian, you can rejoice together in the blessings of having quality uh, skill. Um, And if he's not a Christian, then you rejoice and you give thanks to God for your mechanic anyway, (laughs) Because now my car is fixed and now I can drive again. All right. And same thing with, with kings and rulers. We pray for them in church. You notice this. We do it every week in the prayer of the church. We're always praying for our rulers, whether they believe a thing or not, whether they are a Christian or not. We give thanks when they, when they protect us and they give us liberty. Um, but like we saw with First Kings and we hear, see, see here in Daniel, sometimes God's, God actually strikes down a kingdom that was even a beneficial kingdom. You know, Daniel and the other people have a pretty good life going. And what does God do? Sends in Cyrus and they destroy them right, and overcome them. And I say, well, I, maybe what it is, is that we're, hmm, we love this life. We love things to be consistent, calm, never changing, right? And the reality of the story is your life is always changing and things are never quite as calm as you think they are. Um, I was listening to an interview with a woman, her name is Rose Schindler, not related to the Schindler, of the Schindler's List, um, but also was in Auschwitz, uh, and she met her husband actually there, mm-hmm. and so she's ninety now. So, I mean, she, she was very young when she was at Auschwitz, and she writes the story of both their life before and then their life after. But in the interview, she's like in 1937, we'd heard rumblings, but everything was good, and and within less than a year, we had like all of our rights taken away from us, and we we're being bussed, you know, basically shipped off. Like, it happened, from her perspective, living in a village in, in, in Poland, it happened overnight, basically. What was her first name? Rose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I can't remember the name of the book. I was just listening to an interview with her. Rose Schindler, you'll find it on uh, Amazon. But um, Her husband came from, like, a suburb of Berlin, was raised in the city. Um, he was... Czech, but spoke German. His family moved to Berlin for the best education, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then, uh, but they both ended up in the camp. She came from a rural farm village. He came from a big city that, and uh, they were equally oppressed as part of the story. I mean, there was no partiality there. Why did I bring up that? Oh, yeah. Uh, the government changed on a dime for them. And they were both, both living comfortably um, in their world and then everything changed. So uh, it happens, it's going to happen here for Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? Everything's going to change. And who does it? God does it. Mm. All right. Is that as far as we went? No, we have a little bit more. This is the dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. All right. So now you, Belteshazzar, notice whose name, what name does he use? He uses the, he uses the name that he has given him after the Babylonian God. So who does he believe in? He doesn't call him Daniel after Elohim, you know, the Hebrew name. Nope. He maybe he thinks I mean Bel or Marduk, depending on what name you want to use, is the most high God. That's possible. Declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me by interpretation. But you are able for the again. There it is again. For the spirit of the holy of holy gods is in you. All right. I mean. It, we have to give Nebuchadnezzar some credit. He acknowledges that Daniel has a supernatural ability, right? It's outside of Daniel's natural ability, but he's been given this ability to interpret these dreams, right? Is he confessing faith in the true God, All right? Yeah. Uh, no, he threatened that in chapter two. Yeah, but Daniel forestalled that by uh, interpreting the dream. That's funny. Um, All right. Uh, The question on the sheet, verse four. That's question number one. Helps us understand why the Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream. Explain. Why did God give him the dream?
2: Because he was
0: proud. Because he was not relying on anyone. He should just himself. What a great guy he is. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and that's a repeated theme in the Bible. What does he do with the proud? Right? And what does he do with the lowly? Exalts them, right? Mary says it in the Magnificat, uh, but she's just quoting many, many, many scripture passages. Right? Think of Isaiah taking the mountains and leveling them and raising the low you know the, the valleys. Right? So everybody's before God, there's was an absolute level playing field. All of the what we think of like earthly righteousness, it isn't it doesn't actually it doesn't, it, there's no, there's no benefit um, before God um, in like establishing a wonderful earthly kingdom, you know? It's kind of like the pharaohs, right? When they, with, their, with their tombs, right? And then what was the idea? They, they get buried with all of their stuff so that they could take it with them into the afterlife, right? And then we joke about it, right? Um, I found a picture on the internet of one of these. Because I always said, you know, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Mm-hmm. But then I found a picture of one on the internet. Because, of course, somebody's done it. Take the U-Haul in with you.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah, everything is everything is calm and is at peace. He's flourishing in his palace. He rests in the house. I've said this as, as a pastor. The, the time that I'm most uncomfortable as a pastor is when everything's working.
1: <laughs>
0: everything's getting done. You know, the furnaces are both working right now one isn't waiting on the part um you know the enrollment's up bank account's solid uh so money's always a big one there you know people are showing up attendance is is consistent or good and um nobody's in the hospital and you know you know when when you get comfortable like that that's when i get the most nervous because that's then the next week's the week you have the three funerals you know (laughs) Or, or whatever it is, you have the emer- you have the roof cave in, or I, or the basement flood that Did happened. I
2: ever say that you're feeling fey, f e y. F e y. Everything is fine. I'm all cool. It's called don't be fey. Don't
0: be fey. I like that. <laughs> I just got it yesterday. I haven't looked at it yet. My uncle. I've been asking him to do it. He told me he had done it, but I'd never seen it. He he does have my father's lineage back to the early 1700s now. In, in Ireland and Scotland. So now I can actually um, claim that ancestry. Could you repeat what Bell said? Fay, F E Y. Don't be Fay, it's an Irish expression referring to like. Very, everything is good. Everything is great. Yeah, which is deceit, right? Oh, yeah. You're lying to yourself. Mm-hmm. I know. You're setting yourself up for Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, do I, do I, do. again, Jesus, like, don't worry about tomorrow because you have enough worries for today. <laughs> He's not saying that nothing's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> he's just saying you can 't worry about it because you don 't know what it is yet, right so just deal with whatever's in front of you today and let tomorrow be its thing but don't i, I don't think he's suggesting just sit on your laurels and act as if nothing there's no like for example i like don't let your son go don't let the sun go down on your anger. well, I can deal with that tomorrow. Jesus is very clear no don't leave it don't try to sleep through it or sleep it off you know if you're angry with someone, then you, you tell them right not just as much for their sake as for your own sake. Um, yeah, why do, would you put off? Uh, like, for example, well, you know, this thing is really on my conscience that I said or did. So, you know, next time I see a pastor, I'll set up an appointment and we'll, I'll come and talk to him about it. No, call the, call the pastor. Right? You know, say, I need to talk to you now. Right, because why are you letting it? Take up room in your head when Jesus wants to forgive it. Yeah, and then it festers. That's right. Yeah. Oh, oh, boy. Uh, details, details, details. Where'd the dream come from? The tree would not be completed, uprooted, and destroyed, we talked about. Um, there's other ways that actually I think the, the dream shows us that it came from the Most High God. I mean, he says that, but there's, there's a word, oh, there's a number in there, isn't there? What's the number? Seven, yes. Seven times. It says, uh, let, and let seven times pass over it. Daniel's careful there not to speak of like a specific time indication, right? A seven years. Some people would say it was seven years uh, or seven months or seven hours or whatever it is, but it's seven times, seven indicating again, who did it, who's going to do this. God's going to do this. Uh, with the children at school, um, we'll be studying again this afternoon, the uh, march around Jericho. And you remember how many days did they march? So the first six days, they will go around once, right? Then the seventh day, they go around seven times and with the ark, of course. And then there's seven priests and each have have a horn. So there's seven horns, right? And there's a a few sevens in that story, right? To indicate who's the one who's actually going to give Jericho over to them. God is, right? Yeah. Um, And then next week, we're going to talk about Gideon. Gideon's another fun story where it's like 300 men? Right, I mean, we have like thirty thousand, and now we have three hundred, and we're going to do this really crazy battle tactic, you know, with lamps and in clay pots, and then breaking in and making a loud noise and blowing trumpets, and then you're going to. The point of the story is, of course, who gives them the victory? God does, right? And and the strategy is is completely outrageous. And there's no reason why this should work. Well, there is some reason. It's nighttime. It's chaotic. But but they'll just flee, and then or they'll kill each other. <laughs> Yeah, it's a crazy story. Um, Yes, these watchers. I love this watcher stuff too. And uh, there's the sons of God in Job chapter one, which we talked about. So seven, that's the big one. And again, no no indication of time, um, just that it's seven somethings. Uh, Again, this is very similar to not only, I mentioned Jericho, but think of the Joseph story again. We talked about it with the seven cows and then the seven cows, right? Um, What's another one? Those are seven years, right? Seven cows indicating seven years. So I think, uh, again, it's indicating that not an exact time period, but that, that this is actually uh, God God's doing, his prophecy being fulfilled. So that's important to note. So, well, should we, should we keep going? I guess we should. How much time do we have? Oh, yeah, we still have a few minutes.
2: Yeah, go. Sorry. For 29
0: it says 12 months later. he was walking about the world yes yeah well, we haven't gotten that far yet but so is that the time that's between between the dream and then the events yeah um, of everything coming back around that's why I say seven it doesn't say seven years it says seven times so just meaning it's very severe because that's, was that's
2: months after he was told about what the dream: happened.
0: Correct, correct yeah. And then we do find out, like in 33, that that's when he goes nuts. Yeah, and he ends up acting like an animal. I mean, he's literally eating grass like an oxen. <laughs> yeah, isn't that something? Hey, can you imagine? I mean, like, what would you what would you do if you were like one of his, you know, his wife. well, his wife? I was thinking of like, like if you're a politician, like your handlers, right? And They're like, let's make sure the press corps doesn't see this part. You know. <laughs> Because it would, it would unravel the whole kingdom, which it does, actually, eventually. Not that particular. Yeah, we have kind of a crazy king. Uh, I suppose we'd say a crazy president. All right, we didn't say that. Um, yeah, all right. Good question. Verse 18. Well, we'll introduce this. We'll see how far we get. This is basically the same thing. Right, But Daniel retells the dream in a little bit different way, and I think we should talk about that. So let's read it.
2: This dream I the desert has
1: seen. Now you, Belteshazzar,
2: declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the Holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt. and in whose branches the birds of the heaven have their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave it stump and roots in the earth, bound with the band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let it graze, with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation. O King, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. They shall drive you from men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen.
1: They shall wet you with the
2: dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, so you know that the Most High rules of the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity.
0: All right, good. So uh, he retells the dream. It's a little bit different. You have to probably put the two side by side kind of see the differences um, but I would suggest that it's this that um, Beltesh's are if you prefer Daniel um, he softens it a little bit mm-hmm. yeah did you catch that It's like we're going to leave out a few little details like the part about you becoming an animal you know? <laughs> we're just leave that out I mean it's inferred it's there but he doesn't come just boldly out and say it like oh by the way you're going to act like a cow right <laughs> uh, and we know this from the previous interactions with Nebuchadnezzar uh, the Daniel is he's skilled at um, what do we want to say
1: diplomacy.
0: diplomacy? That's a good word. Yeah, <laughs> diplomacy. I mean, it isn't. He doesn't hold the truth back from him, but he says it in such a way that it's it's tactful. It's winsome. Um, he knows that he needs Nebuchadnezzar to listen. Right. This is, reminds me of like the way that Nathan the prophet interacts with David after his adultery with Bathsheba. Rather than just come out and say, hey, David, I heard that you uh, committed adultery with one of your commander's wives and then had him killed. Um, you got to cut it out, man. You got to repent. That wouldn't go so well, right? That's that was, that's the front door. So instead, David comes in the side door and says, um, or Nathan, excuse me, Nathan comes in the side door and says, I got a little story for you about, you know, these two guys, a poor man and a rich man, and precious you lamb. David's like, oh yeah, he took, his, he took the guy's used lamb. He deserves to die. Or at least should repay it fourfold, right? And then Nathan could say, you are the man, right? Like, oh, I walked into that one, didn't I? <laughs> I'm not so skilled at this. I wish I were. Uh, but Nathan definitely had a gift for that, at least in that story. And it seems Daniel has the same kind of, I mean, we know that Nebuchadnezzar has a violent temper. <laughs> we saw that in chapter two. So whether he does here or not, or he's just actually more fearful um, Daniel approaches him with a, um, like I say, attack or diplomacy. Um, he doesn't want to just have the king cut him off and not listen, right? Because this is the first thing. So remember, Nebuchadnezzar says, I was watching uh, in the visions of my head on my bed, and behold, I saw, right? Now, when Daniel tells the story, what does he keep saying? Like, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong so it is you it is you he keeps saying that he wants nebuchadnezzar to, to start reading himself into the whole vision because it is about him All Right? so he repeats that over and over uh what other ways does he kind of soften it mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: i mentioned the arrogant beast or the beast not being a beast right is there something else i'm looking at the notes here oh, says, be
1: the and don't be
0: ah yes Yeah, I mean, I think some of the other details are just fairly obvious. But that that ending, that conclusion is very interesting, right? Because we just talked about this, about being saved by works right at the beginning of your class. Now look at what it says here. O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous. Does he mean righteous before God? Actually, no. He means um, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. right? So this is to love your neighbor. Yeah, love your neighbor. I mean, you could say it righteous before God and loving towards your neighbor. I suppose you could do that. Um, But notice what he says. If you show mercy to the poor, perhaps there'll be a lengthening of your prosperity, that God will let you be king for a little bit longer. Perhaps. Perhaps. (laughs) Right. I mean, you should do it anyway, but maybe it'll actually come back to benefit you. It reminds me of uh, the fourth commandment, right? Honor your father and your mother, which you should just do no matter what, right? And other authorities. Um, But then God attaches the promise, Luther reminds us, right? that it would go well with you and you live long in the earth, which I always tell my children because I think it's the best. Like you want to live, you do what I tell you. All right. This is how it's going to go.
1: <laughs> well, I mean,
0: there's some wisdom in it though, right? That um, I, I did bring my Augsburg confession because, you know, I always carry it with me everywhere I go. Actually, I actually have a pocket edition that I keep in the car, but here's the big one. Um, but uh, we actually say in Article 4, which has to do with being justified before God, that is righteous before God, there's a little statement from uh, Melanchthon in here um, where he says, 24, no. Oh, I got to go to the right one. Sorry. Just keep flipping back. I'll get there. I'll get there. Patience with me. There it is. All right. Um, we think of righteousness Of reason like this, which is what this is what Daniel's talking about. Righteousness of reason. God requires it. Because of God's commandment, the honorable works commanded by the Ten Commandments must be done. According to Galatians three, the law was our guardian. Likewise, first Timothy. The law was is laid down, or is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. For God wants wild sinners to be restrained by civil discipline. Right? This is what we call the first use of the law, right? The the curb or the restraint. Ding. To maintain discipline, he has given laws, letters, doctrines, rulers, and penalties. To a certain extent, reason can, by its own strength, perform civil righteousness. Righteousness before one another. Yet it is often overcome by natural weakness and by the devil pushing it to do obvious crimes we cheerfully credit this righteousness of reason with the praises that are due to it, right? Remember we were talking about Aristotle and how the, the Roman church says that, like, Aristotle must be pleasing to God because he's, he has this civic righteousness, right? He has all this wisdom and knowledge and he um, lives in moral and a virtue life, virtuous life, right? And we say we cheerfully credit this righteousness of reason with the praises that are due to it, Um this corrupt nature has no greater good. It's the greatest good that we can do in our flesh is to at least not kill each other, you know, and to care for each other. It's true. It's the least we can do. Yeah. Well, that's what it says. There's no greater good. Aristotle rightly says, look at this, rightly says, neither the evening star nor the morning star is more beautiful than righteousness. And God also honors it with bodily rewards to this point, right? Your kingdom will be extended you know, if you show mercy to the poor. And this is generally good practice. You don't alienate your citizens, right? Because eventually there will be a revolution. Yeah. However, however, it ought not be praised by dishonoring Christ, right? So we don't praise your civic righteousness in place of the righteousness that is demanded of faith in Christ, okay? So, so it is, False, that we merit forgiveness of sins by our works. All right, so that's the point. Very interesting, right? So we can praise people for their godly, for, I should say not godly, for their civic works, for their righteous works. Like, you know, you're buying malaria tents and you're helping prevent the spread of malaria. That is something to be commended and to, be, and to even be thanked and to be praised, right? That's Bill Gates Foundation, by the way. Uh, the fact, the same foundation supports uh, Planned Parenthood with millions and millions of money, dollars, Uh, is not to be praised, because that is unrighteous, destroying life. Hmm. All right. So I brought that up. You brought that up, the end of it there. Um, So it will go well for you as a king if you take care of your citizens. I mean, that's kind of, is that obvious? I suppose it is to us, but it wasn't so much to them, you know, where they had a very strong class, if you like warfare. The king is the king, right? But especially that statement in verse 25, right? That you, uh, yeah, they shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with, I mean, now he's not holding any punches, right? They shall wet you with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you. That is, you're gonna be like that until it's complete, right? Remember seven is a number It's a number of God, of God's doing, but of of completion or the end, right? Think of how many days in in creation? Seven days. On the seventh day, he rested, right? How many days of Holy Week? Seven. He enters the holy city, and on the seventh day, he rests from all the work that he has done, right? Which is Saturday for us. Holy Saturday, right? Until you know that the Most High rules in in the kingdom of men and chooses, or and gives it to whomever he chooses, all right, so why is this all going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar? What's the purpose, the meaning? That he would confess that everything he has is a result of the God of Belt- Belteshazzar. <laughs> Daniel. We'll just say Daniel. Yeah. Now, is that, is that a, the exclusion of all of his other gods? No, but I mean, uh, when it comes to evangelism, we have to be willing... Um, to go as far as people are willing to go with us, right? Mm-hmm. And so, is he going to go from polytheistic, you know, I, idol worship and even self-worship mm-hmm. to, like, faith in one God and one God alone overnight? Mm-hmm. Or even over a span of years? Maybe, probably not. Yeah, yeah. I did think of this watcher language. We actually sing this in a hymn. You know which hymn I'm thinking of? Ye and ye holy yeah, you ye watchers and ye holy ones, which is a song about... <laughs> the angels, yeah, and also, who's the queen of the angels? I know we don't usually say that, but the hymn does. Mary, Mary. yeah. Uh, sometimes look at the look at the text. Um, there's a stanza to Mary in the hymn, which for some now now, now that I pointed that out to some Lutherans, like, oh, we can't sing it because you can't sing to Mar- sing about Mary. i like, oh not well. <laughs> Sorry. I mean there are St. Mary's that are Lutheran churches. Just not so much in the US. Yeah. Uh, let's see. That's about where we should probably go, but we didn't actually finish it. Do you think we can actually finish it? I don't think we can finish it. Yeah. What else do you want to talk about? I have one thing that I want to tell you about. So maybe we'll read the end of it next week and then we'll just jump into 5, okay? But let me, I want to actually read to you. I try to do this same time we can. Again, Lutheran Confessions, when it actually quotes a text that we're studying, I like to go and read it so that you know. Like, Here's how this story has been used by the confessors of, of the faith. And we, again, we subscribe to this. Um, our subscription, though, this is going to be an interesting part of the story. Our subscription to the Lutheran Confessions is that it teaches what the Bible teaches. All right, And we're referring to doctrine. So it teaches the faith that we believe from the scriptures. That doesn't mean we always agree with the way it interprets a particular story from the Bible. And in this case, Daniel chapter 4, Philip Melanchthon in the Apology, the Augsburg Confession in regards to faith, he says the other thing, that Daniel actually, or excuse me, Daniel, yeah, through the preaching of Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar converts to true faith. Uh, We don't exactly agree with the interpretation, but always, you can if you want, um, but we do agree with everything that he talks about in regards to faith and conversion. So listen to this. Faith is required, also in the Sermon of Daniel, chapter 4. For Daniel did not mean that the king should only give alms, you know, give, give to the poor. He includes repentance when he says, break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. And right? so that's confession of sins. This means break off your sins by a change of heart and works. Here also faith is required. Daniel proclaims to him many things about the worship of the only God, the God of Israel. He converts the king, not only to give alms, but much more to have faith. For we have the excellent confession of the king about the God of Israel. Oh, we haven't read that yet. Sorry. Getting ahead of myself. Verse 29. I think it's verse 29. No, not quite. Uh, 34. Yeah, it's a different... Uh, So this is actually quoting the the Hebrew text, not the... Okay, well, anyway. uh, We have the excellent confession from the king. There is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Oh, that's from chapter 3, sorry. With With the burning fiery furnace, right? Therefore, in Daniel's sermon, there are two parts. One part gives a commandment about the new life and the works of the new life. In the other part, Daniel promises the forgiveness of sins to the king. Did you read all that? Hmm. Not so sure, Philip. Anyway, this promise of the forgiveness of sins is not the preaching of the law, but a truly prophetic and evangelical voice. Daniel certainly meant that the promise should be received in faith. For Daniel knew that the forgiveness of sins in Christ was promised not only to the Israelites, but also to all nations. See, all of this is true. Whether it actually is true in the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar isn't the point, right? Okay. Um, For Daniel knew, we already said that, otherwise he could not have promised to the king forgiveness of sins. For without God's sure word about his will, a person has no power to claim, especially when terrified by sin, that God ceases to be angry. In his own language, Daniel speaks clearly about repentance and even more clearly brings out the promise, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. These words, Teach all about repentance. Hmm. Teach about all of repentance. They direct the king to become righteous, then to do good works. So remember, I said you could read it that way. That you know, practice righteousness means to be faithful to God, and then show mercy to the poor means to love your neighbor. So you could read it that way, which is what Melanchthon's doing. Um, for without God's Sure word about his will, a person would have no power to claim. Daniel speaks clearly about repentance and even more clearly brings out the promise, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. They direct the king to become righteous, then to do good works, to defend the miserable against injustice, as was the king's duty. Righteousness is faith in the heart. Furthermore, sins are redeemed by repentance. In other words, the obligation or guilt is removed because God forgives those who repent, as it is written in Ezekiel 18. Nor are we to conclude from this that he forgives on account of the works that follow, on account of alms. Rather, he forgives only those who take hold of it on account of his promise. Only those who truly believe take hold of this promise and through faith overcome sin and death. These being reborn should produce fruit worthy of repentance, just as John the Baptist says. See Matthew 3. The promise, therefore, was added, there may be, or there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. St. Jerome expresses some doubt here, which is beside the matter, okay? In his commentary, he argues much more unwisely that the forgiveness of sins is uncertain. right, so he disagreed with me, too. But let us remember that the gospel gives a sure promise of the forgiveness of sins, To deny that there must be a sure promise of the forgiveness of sins would completely abolish the gospel. Let us dismiss Jerome concerning this passage. The promise is displayed even in the words break off, for it shows that the forgiveness of sins is possible, that sins can be redeemed, that is, that their obligation or guilt can be removed or God's anger can be appeased. But our adversaries overlooking the promises everywhere consider only the laws, they falsely attach the human opinion that forgiveness happens on account of works. The text, Daniel 4, does not say this, but instead requires faith. For wherever a promise is, their faith is required. For a promise cannot be received unless through faith. And there's more, but we'll leave it. Oh, good night. He keeps going about Daniel. Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. uh. Oh. Anyway, so I, I don't know if you have to agree with Melanchthon that Daniel 4 is a sermon about law and gospel, um, but everything he says is actually true about the preaching of the law and the gospel, that, that uh, the righteousness before man cannot, is not the righteousness that God demands, right? So to preach that to be a Christian is to show mercy to the poor, is, is, that's actually preaching of the law, and it doesn't produce faith before God. But that works do follow from faith before God right, as Daniel says, right, and that actually God blesses those righteous works before your neighbor, right, so if you take care of the poor, it will come back, you know, what do they say, pay it forward, right, Um, and maybe it will, perhaps, uh, for for Nebuchadnezzar, actually, it ends up doing that, so that's an apology to the Augsburg Confession, Article 4, Paragraphs 261 to 268, right, yeah, a lot of stuff. But he, but he uses the story of Daniel, this story of Daniel, um, to, as, as an example of actually proper preaching. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. I mean, he's interpreting a dream. And certainly the dream brings law against Nebuchadnezzar, right? You're going to be judged, right? And there is going to be a change of heart from Nebuchadnezzar, right? After that seven times of being a cow, a mad cow, it's mad cow disease. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, he will, he will um, come to a, f- a form of repentance, whether it's true faith in God or if it's just, I acknowledge that um, Daniel, your God is, is a God above God's. I mean, I'm actually content with that, the latter, just saying that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that the God that Daniel worships is, like he has already done in previous chapters, is the, is the, he's the head honcho, even though he's still holding maybe some other gods. And um, like I say, we can work with that. (laughs) That's a good starting spot. I mean, it's not true faith in God, but it's at least a move to acknowledge that the God that Walt believes in um, is worthy of some consideration, right? Right? We got to at least start there. And like I said, way at the beginning when we were talking about the historicity of the Bible, that's what we're doing when we say, all right, you believe in all this stuff, um, I've got this art, what we believe in and I can tell you a little bit about that but specifically this guy named Jesus who actually lived and breathed claimed to be the son of God promised that he would die on the third day of rise and then he actually pulled it off and I think that means you should probably take him seriously it, you know I'm not saying you have to put aside all your other gods yet but, but at least listen to him and hear what he has to say alright because have any of your dead gods I wouldn't say that <laughs> Have any of the guys that you believe in actually done what they said that they could do? Right. And uh, that's a starting spot. And you're not—you're not. Are you rejecting faith in Jesus in the process by saying you just recognize that um, you know um, conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit, and you got to start with the start with get to the heart of the matter and then let it spin out. You know, and then Jesus will the rest of your life as He is for you even be casting idols down from, from your th- the throne of your heart. <laughs> all the things that you put your fear, love, and trust in uh, above him or before his face, as it is for Nebuchadnezzar. So I don't know if you've had as much of a conflict with this, but I did, you know. Is Nebuchadnezzar a faithful or is he not? So, all right. And then, like I said, we'll read the end of, and we'll get to find out about his cowing cowness next week. And we'll jump into chapter five, which is the next king, Belshazzar. There, I had a good time saying that. Is that no, that's Daniel's name. What's his name? Belshazzar. Belshazzar. Okay, well, close enough. All right. I know, I know. Let's close with prayer and a blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you send your messengers amongst us to preach your holy word, that we would um, come to learn who you are and what you have done for us, and namely that you have given us forgiveness of sins in your son Jesus alone. We ask that you would work this repentance in our heart, and then uh, in, those repen- in our repentant hearts to work uh, love for our neighbors, as you would have us do. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you all. and keep you safe. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin.